We left our pilgrim on the bridge over the fifth pouch, looking down, seemingly at a dead halt in the plot. But man, is it not going to be at a dead halt. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast, Walking with Dante. We're slow walking through Dante's masterwork comedy. We're calling it comedy because he called it comedy. <laughs> if you have any doubts about that, go back to the previous episode of this podcast. We are in the circles of fraud, the evil pouches or pits or fissures or cracks of fraud. We are down here in the fifth one. And we have seen bubbling pitch, but not much else. We have come down, let me remind you, through the seducers and the pimps, then the flatterers, then the simoniacs, the people who sell church offices, then the soothsayers, and now here we are at the fifth pit of fraud, this most human of sins, not one of the seven deadly sins, but Dante's rewriting of the whole nature of error, fraud, what humans do to each other as low down in hell. Think about that for just a second. Think about how flatterers are farther down in hell than murderers. <laughs> you just got to get your brain around that. Otherwise, here it comes. Lines 22 through 45 of Canto 21 of Inferno. While my gaze was stuck on the stuff down there, my guide said to me, Watch out! Watch out! Then he yanked me over to him from where I stood. At that I turned around like a guy who looks almost too late at what he surely must flee. So dispirited is he with sudden fear, even if, looking back, he doesn't hesitate to take flight. And I see back behind us a black devil running right at us along the crag. Wow! How insanely fierce he looked, and how disgusting his bearing appeared to me, with his wings spread wide and so light on his feet, draped over his shoulder, which were themselves sharp and huge. A sinner was clutched tight by the haunches and hooked through the sinews at his heels. From our bridge, the demon called out, Hey, you evil talons! Behold an elder from St. Zita in Luca. Dunk him under while I go back for another. In that city which is stocked up with this sword, everybody's a parroter there except for Bonturo. They morph no into yes for simple cash. He chucked the guy down and turned back along the hard crag. Man, a mastiff let loose never made off so fast after a thief. Chaotic, dramatic, and we're just getting started. Basically, we've got about four things to do in this passage. We got to talk about Virgil's action here. We got to talk about Dante's action. We got to talk about this devil, this demon, and what he looks like. And then we've got to do a who's who at the end of the passage of St. Zita and Bontura and all that. So let's get started. While my gaze was stuck on the stuff down there, the passage starts at line 22. My guide said to me, watch out, watch out. Then he yanked me over to him from where I stood. Virgil is the one to call Dante out. Watch out, 
watch out. He says it twice in the Florentine. Take care, take care. Be careful, be careful. Watch out, watch out. Is this literary or actual? <laughs> That's a funny question, isn't it? But there may be a way in which the previous passage, and you have to go back to that passage, Dante got a little carried away with that metaphor about the Venetians. And after that entire metaphor that was essentially a tautology with a little bit of theology thrown over the top of it, well, it's not fire that makes the pitch in this pouch bubble, but divine art. So with a little bit of, uh, you know, A equals A prime in that tautological metaphor, Dante then just stands and stares down into the pitch again. Virgil is the one to call him back. The reason I say this, is it literary or actual? It is actual because there's a demon on the run here, but it could be literary too. The poet has gotten carried away in metaphor, so much so that the plot has come to a dead halt. And so, once again, classical poetry to the rescue. Once again, the poet must refer back to classical poetry, to the exemplar of Virgil, to get the plot moving again. And so Virgil is the one who calls, watch out, watch out. After all, you don't need Virgil to say this. You can have the pilgrim hear the, the demon scuffling along the crag. Listen, you can do this scene in a lot of ways. You don't need Virgil right here. So that Virgil cries, watch out, watch out, it strikes me is part of a larger system, maybe even a joke. I got carried away by the metaphor. As a poet, I got to watch out. I got carried away so much by the metaphor that the plot came to a dead halt. Classical poetry is going to goose me and get me going again. I think it's all nicely done and super meta, which you know I love. Let's talk about Dante, the pilgrim. At that, I turned around like a guy who looks almost too late at what he surely must flee. So dispirited is he with sudden fear, even if looking back, he doesn't hesitate to take flight. And I see behind us a black devil. Why is he afraid? And I'm going to bring this up here and not actually answer it too much. But we should note that Dante's response throughout this sequence in the fifth evil pouch, his response is mostly fear and, as we'll see, some rationality. He really hasn't been this scared in a while. The last time he was shook like this was before the walls of Dis, when Virgil was stymied by the Furies Medusa and other demons. There, Dante also quaked in his boots in front of what was happening. And you'll notice there, too, there are demons who rebuff Virgil. Both times Dante is caught shaking, caught very much afraid. He was also, and I need to point this out, he was also very much afraid on Garion's back when Garion flies off the ledge of the violent and down to the circles of fraud. Dante was very scared there, but, and this is the big change, but Virgil seemed much more in charge in that sequence. Before the walls of Dis, Virgil is stymied by all those evil figures who are stopping his access to the city. And here again, Virgil will be ultimately stymied, but we have to get to that. Virgil has come in for some hard times. I mean, really, having to rewrite the Aeneid, having to say that the Aeneid didn't tell the truth in 
Canto 20. Now Virgil is going to come in for some even harder times because Virgil is going to be shown to be, well, the great innocent in the face of this unbelievably chaotic drama. But we got to work to get to that. So let's just move on and look at this devil. I see back behind us a black devil running right at us along the crag. Wow, how insanely fierce he looked and how disgusting his bearing appeared to me with his wings spread wide. Notice he's got wings and so light on his feet. I take it that his wings are outstretched and he runs with them kind of bat-like open and so it helps his feet barely touch the ground as he runs along. I take it that that's what's going on there. That's why he's light on his feet because I don't think that normally you'd think of demons as, well, dancers, as, as easily up on their toes. So he's coming, running along. This is a traditional devil of medieval plays. This is the kind of thing you'd expect to see in a town square as the players come through. We've seen this kind of devil uh, once before in Canto 18, there they're whipping the pimps and the seducers as they rotate in opposite directions in the pouch. But if you remember there, those demons were merely horned. We've also seen demons, back to that bit on the walls of Dis, at the gates of Dis. There they're referred to as fallen angels, but they're not very visualized there. We seem to get all our attention up onto the Furies and on the possibility of Medusa and all of that up there. So it, it seems that we're looking at them. And yes, there's a crowd of demons blocking Virgil, but they're not terribly visualized and they're described as fallen angels. This is the first real full description of a demon or a devil that we've seen and this one seems very stereotypical so detailed and we should look at those details because it seems like that they're important not only that he's got wings and is light on his feet and able to run fast and apparently has talons or hooks or claws that are just really nasty not only all of that but that detail that he's a black devil. The devil doesn't have to be black, you know. This demon could be red. He could be puke green. In fact, often in medieval stories, devils are reddish. They're sometimes black. It's not unheard of. But it seems important here to note that the devil is called out as black and his color is given as one of his most important details. Why? Because Dante. Dante was exiled in 1302 on the charge of baratry, on the charge of grafting. That is one of the charges, the possible main charge brought against him to send him into exile. And who brought that charge against this white Gelf Dante? The Black Gelfs. And here we may see throughout this pouch all about political favors and bribes and kickbacks. We may see an entire play on the comedy of Dante's exile. That is, he may be making fun of the very people who exiled him. And that could help explain why the pilgrim is so afraid. Because after all, Dante, the real poet, was put into exile over Baratry. Now listen, I don't know that Dante accepted bribes. He could have. People in that high of a position of political power in city governments often were on the take. I don't have any problem with thinking even that he did, 
But I also know that baritry or graft is a typical charge thrown against opponents at a regime change. You just have to think about the current moment in the United States. Graft is thrown around from one side to the other when you know they're both probably guilty of it. And it's prototypical that Dante would be exiled for baritry, amongst other things. Still and nonetheless, this is the charge that sends him into exile. It could explain why the pilgrim is so scared here, and it could explain the comedy that is about to happen. That is, this entire scene with the baritors, the grafters, the people who are on the take, the mafia dons, these people are being made fun of in a mock recreation of Dante's own trial that sent him into exile even without him present. One more thing to say about this. Notice that draped over the demon's shoulders, which were sharp and huge, the sinner is clutched tight by the haunches and hooked through the sinews of the heels. This demon is carrying this guy the way a butcher carries a haunch of a cow. He's got his big claw hooked through basically the Achilles tendon and the guy's thrown over his shoulder. It's really disgusting. And it's going to continue a food metaphor. Remember I told you the Malabolja, the circles of fraud, are full of food metaphors? Well, believe me, they're going to play out in grotesque ways in this canto because, to use Robert Durling's point, we are amongst the bowels of hell here, and it's going to get very... hmm, bowelish as we go forward. But right now, let's just notice the butchery imagery here, hooking the haunch on a hook and carrying it over your shoulder as a butcher would do. That's how this demon is using his claw. Let's move on to a who's who once the devil starts speaking. From our bridge, the demon called out, hey, you evil talents. What he says is malabranque. That is evil talents. I've translated just straight into English, evil claws or evil talents. That seems to be the name of all the devils in this pouch. You should know that there are many more besides this guy coming running along the crag. There are lots of them, and they are the Malabranque, or the evil talons, known, I suppose, for their claws, their hooks, their cruel nails that they use to pick you up, and also, as we will see, for the forks or the rakes or the sharp prongs that they use as weapons. We'll see that on ahead. So he says, Behold an elder from St. Zita in Lucca. I've told you that the pouches are a tour of central Italy, and here we come to Lucca. We've already seen Bologna. We may have had a comment about Rome amongst the Simoniacs, and here now we're with the Lucans, people apparently who are known for excessive bribery. Saint Zita is important because Saint Zita was not a saint in Dante's day. Zita was a young servant. She died about 1278, so probably, almost certainly, in Dante's lifetime. She was reputed to have performed various miracles. She is not canonized until 1690, but she was highly respected in Lucca, and there was already a cult in Lucca at this time. Of course, we would not expect this demon to understand the niceties of the canonization process, and so that he refers to Saint Zita, when in fact she's not a saint at this moment, is just part of his kind of misunderstanding of religious rites up above, and also... We should note, Sita, a servant. 
Remember I told you that that whole uh, Venetian simile was a proletarian idol about people working on ships and caulking them and sewing the jibs and mainsails and all that? He's another member of the, as we would now say, proletariat of the, well, it's a little below working class. This is the servant class, but still a member of a very low class. There may be a proletarian commentary, to use big modern words, going on throughout this circle of baritry, which, as I've said to you before, is a sin of those with a lot of money and a lot of power. So he points out St. Zita in Luca. He says he's brought this guy from there. Who is this guy? Well, Guido de Pisa tells us a little bit. Guido de Pisa wrote a commentary in 1327, very, again, very early. Uh, Dante dies in 1321, so very early commentary. And we can trust Guido de Pisa a bit, not always, but a bit, because he's so close to Dante. He claims that this guy is Martino Botario, or Botai, Martino Botai, Guido de Pisa claims that this this guy was a local political boss of Don, a somebody who was definitely on the take and accepting bribes open-handedly. Interestingly, and this is what I think de Pisa's point is, and I find this to be intriguing, if true, if you can trust this, Martino Botario, or Botai, died on the 26th of March, 1300, which is the very day this event is taking place. We're going to know that better, as we'll see, because the journey is going to be very precisely dated in this canto, and that we would have this guy die on exactly the day that this demon drags him down to hell is all extremely interesting. So he drags him down, he brings him down, and he throws him in, and he says, in that city, Luca, it's stocked with this sort of barrator, this grafter. Everybody's a barrator there, except for Bonturo. And we should know that this is super sarcastic. Of course demons are sarcastic. What else could they be? He says, except for Bonturo. He's referring to Bonturo Dati. He died about 1325. He's a political boss in Luca. When Pope Boniface VIII met and hugged Bonturo, Bonturo reportedly, at least in one story, said to the Pope, you're hugging half of Luca. In other words, I, I'm such a Don. I'm such a, I'm such a Macha, to use the Yiddish word. I'm such a Macha, but I, I've got all, I, I got half a Luca behind me that, you know, I've got them all under my thumb. So this reference to Bonturo Dati is super sarcastic, but we should also note that Bonturo Dati doesn't die till 1325. When did Sante die? 1321. Ah, when is this being written? Mm, the thir- early 1310s? Wow, Dante's being brave. He's smacking a mafioso type right here. Somebody on the political take. Uh, he's saying, <laughs> you know, well, gee, wait till Bonturo gets down here in this pit. Brave stuff for a poet who is at the protection and the behest of Warlord to suddenly backhand another one. Notice, too, the the demon says they morph in Luca, no into yes for simple cash. And again, just to reiterate my theme, notice that it is this whole um, 
a bit of metamorphoses that go on in fraud. And there are a series of metamorphoses. And here, the metamorphosis that goes on is that Baratree graft turns no into yes. You know, you slip, slip a little cash under the table, little money, and what was before forbidden is suddenly allowed. This seems to be the minor metamorphosis in this canto and the root of the sin of grafting. So the demon chucks the guy down into the pitch. He turns back and runs along the Crag man, a mastiff let loose, never made off so fast after a thief. Notice the bestial imagery, a mastiff, a large snarling dog. It's got wings. Notice, notice how inhuman this thing is or how twisted it is. It's like a dog. It's got wings. It's black. It's barely on its feet. It's light on its feet. It's got talons that can hook under the Achilles tendon and hold the haunch of the guy over its shoulders. Notice that its shoulders are sharpened. Notice how twisted and barely human this demon is, and he's not the only one, because we're about to meet an entire troop of them. In order to do that, you have to subscribe to this podcast. You have to come back next time. We have to talk more about Dante, the poet, the real Dante, and his relationship to Baratree. We have to talk more about his relationship to fear, and we have to find out a lot more about these hideous creatures who line this pitch-filled ditch. They're going to boil out from under the bridge. We're going to see a whole crew of them. It can't get more hellish and, as you'll see, more funny than this. I know, funny. Have a guy hooked by the Achilles tendon, throwing him into boiling pitch. That's funny? (laughs) Just wait. In fact, it may be funny from the very start, as Virgil himself stops our poet from quite so elaborate and unhinged a simile. Come back next time. Rate this podcast. Give it a comment. I'd really appreciate that. But otherwise, I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you next time. Mm